America is the land of opportunity. Our founders believe that every individual has the God-given right to pursue their greatest potential, the freedom to flourish and govern themselves as individuals, families, communities, and a nation. And our founders worked tirelessly to develop a system of government that would protect that liberty. This belief has made the United States the freest and most prosperous nation in history, and a shining city on a hill, an example to the rest of the world. On American Lives, we'll talk with individuals who have pursued their American dreams and made the most out of the opportunities guaranteed to them at our founding. These incredible men and women share the stories of their success, their love for our nation and its history, and why they consider the work of the Ashbrook Center so essential in educating future generations about the history and principles of America. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of American Lives. Today, we're joined by a, a truly remarkable person, David Parker. Uh, David, uh, <laughs> you have had such an amazing and interesting life, uh, truly American life. You've been an entrepreneur, you have been an educator, a jazz musician, and now you are a writer, uh, a columnist, and a book author. And as you say in your latest book, all of these careers have been simultaneous. <laughs> um, your three books, Income and Well, A San Francisco Conservative, and the most recent one here, just coming out hot off the press, Rome 476. Um, it's, thank you, by the way, for taking the time to join us on American Lives today. Deeply appreciate that. I mean, glad you um, In many ways, the story of David Parker, and you mentioned this to me before, your story doesn't start exactly with you. It starts with your grandparents and parents. Tell us about them and the influence they had on your life. It follows it with two epiphanies as a child. One, at 12 years old, sitting at the breakfast table working my cars, and I read in the newspaper that a waiter had died at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco, and they'd go with his mattress and pour it out stocks and stocks. He was a multi-millionaire in 1956. Wow. And he was still a waiter. That's what he wanted to do a little life. But, um, I says, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. That really took me back. Began to think about it. Didn't have an answer. And I was 14, three years later, my grandmother told me that uh, when the you fled Vienna right out of San Diego, ran into the hill. Really? Left the stove on in their house and ran into the same top. They made this far as San Francisco, and the first thing he did, my grandfather buys a house. Well, how's that possible? And then keep pacing up and down, and I ran the tells on, can't take it. He dribbled out and did a job for do something. Take to keep pacing the house. Tom. Came back at the end of the day. I bought four movie theaters. <laughs> the incredible. <laughs> so there it is. I said, oh, now I know he didn't have a station by There it is. Really is not. He said, my first book, the inspiration for my first book, Income and Wealth. I were to put a plasticine. There is no connection. There are two separate entities. You can do really 
a poor person and you can uh, and you have a low salary that poor and uh you can become fabulous as often because there's two different processes mm, that's very important so really from them as you say you learned uh important lessons about building wealth about wealth creation and obviously you have been enormously successful in the field of real estate uh here in san francisco in the san francisco area um Thinking about the lessons that you've learned in your lifetime in business and in real estate, what are some of the most important of those? Well, I just, to be quite, well, I gave a lesson just now. Don't make, there's no reason not to acquire assets because you don't have a lot of money. It's called no. Never buy out. It's one word of the way. You just finance your profit. Uh, I just learned to finance all my purchasing. Hmm. As a school teacher, 40 years plus 10 years of volunteer, I work, and I get to work full time. I never made more than $20,000 a year. I never spent personally for groceries. I hired less than 100000 a year, and I never purchased less than a million dollars with the energy state. I mean, you don't prove that I'm fucking with that. Right. There's no connection. It does strike me, though, that that kind of approach to business can yield the kind of results that it has yielded for you. It also bears some risk. Can you talk a little bit about the risk of entrepreneurship? Fortunately, I have no awareness of risk. <laughs> Every, <laughs> it helps. Um, people, a lot of things, probably not because you suffer. In Income and Wealth, my first book, I have almost an Excel spreadsheet how a minimum wage employee at the Donald can become financially independent in 10 years. Wow, that's amazing. Penny for penny for penny. The tax break, the tax break. And in essence, you save past your gross salary. It helps you get it with your wife. It would be to stay after gross salary on what leverage you buy and it will come to this thing has to day. Uh-huh. An old house. Uh-huh. In San Francisco, and there's no such thing as a little house and it is super extensive. Buy half a house. Buy a third of a house. Maybe do it with your brother or a relative or a, a close child or friend they can trust. Thanks. Uh, just buy it. It will come to this thing has to Every year for 10 years, they used to stop. The cash flow will deal with what your salary was when you started. Amazing. Amazing. Now, if they can tax breaks and get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But And you mentioned while you're being a successful real estate entrepreneur, you're also teaching music. It's been a passion of yours. But you're teaching music in San Francisco public schools, in schools in some pretty tough areas. What led you to that uh, aspect of your life? Well, one side of me uh, wanted some type of a communal relation in my work. I didn't want to be sitting in front of a cubicle by myself and just doing good work with somebody else. So teaching you, there are a community of teachers. I didn't change schools. Well, as years go by, I know all the faculty. Then I know the the children of my previous things. 
and they had their grandchildren. I mean, I know their families, and that's very satisfying. Too. Mm-hmm. Go with it, be part of community to have lunch together, to have go out together, to socialize together. But I, I wanted that part of my life. Uh, the community is one part of teaching, of course, and being in the school and with the kids. What's another joy that you found in teaching music specifically? What is so joyful about teaching music to young kids? But wasn't quite that. All my four simultaneous careers are linked and that there's a certain spontaneity that I do and teaching is one's more adding into it flex my spontaneity uh-huh. and so that was an enjoyment of every year that that these decide what profession where you can improve you grow as you grow you bring everything where your life to your job or your profession so you with that and uh i found myself teaching every year better every year better uh-huh. first grade teachers have been knowing to stay in the first grade for 40 years and the end of their career they were like dots. They were just teaching it. Um, but I got, that was part of the thrill in teaching better, the self improvement it. Uh, and then, yeah, the response from the kids. Uh, of course. Yeah. Right. Very excited. Um, while you're being an entrepreneur, while you're teaching, you're also a musician. Right. And uh, I dare say, a person who's had been part of a symphony for 20 years right. and then part of your own band in jazz band in, for the last 20 years. Um, tell me about your success in music, because it's one thing to be a student of it. It's another thing to actually play it at a high level the way you do. Right. I was playing professional um, when I played in the Brooklyn Synth Bay for 20 years. I auditioned for it. Mm-hmm. There were I would full French horns at the time. There were quite free horns ahead of me. I was the last one. I played. You got it. <laughs> I was so relaxed for fit I was never going to get it. <laughs> I really want to hear, want to hear a little, a little, uh, brown, but I was over the time cocky is it somehow they appreciate it because they were tired of listening to all these folks. Not right. And, uh, so I got the, I got that. And then I switched, uh, to jazz. I got very serious. And, uh, my band, uh, Twice headlined San Francisco's uh, Fillmore Jazz Festival. Wow. Big stage of 20 Yeah. Hundreds of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I, have, I have some of the best musicians in town. What a track, what a track if you don't mind my asking, moving from classical music in an orchestra, symphony, to jazz, what attracted you to jazz music? I guess I always liked it. I can remember the first day I find it really still in Thelonious Monk. Aha. I came home from school sick. I think it was in the eighth grade. <laughs> and lay down, and I had our old-fashioned record players that had a, a reject button. So when I got to the end, they went back and played it again. Uh-huh. And I saw a suit. When I first put it on, I'm, I'm listening, and I'm sure I did this. When I woke up, after hearing it 13 times, I got sorry, I thought I was saying, I got it. You understood it. I just did it. Huh. And so I tell love with jazz. We uh, get people, um, people sometimes say that jazz, and I've heard it described this way, that jazz is America's classical music. That's the way I would have answered your question. Classical music and jazz and 
What's the connection? Because I think most people think there's classical music over here, and then there's things like rock and roll over here, and they don't quite know where jazz fits. On as the special level, our compositional level, they're all the same. And Clemson music from India, from Africa, from anywhere in the world, at its best, it's, uh, it's, uh, everybody understands the same things. It makes it great. Uh, so some of the best rock musicians, Beatles, for example, and McCarthy and Lennon, are winnowed composers. Their musical black are will be heard two hundred years from now. Because of their, they understand yeah, music. They really understand. They're really composers, and jazz is that way. And I'm happy to personally listen to uh, contemporary music, contemporary classical, mm-hmm. Carter and Schoenberg and uh, Boulez and, uh, and Stockhausen. Mm-hmm. I go, I put that on before I go on the set. He and my, the guys of Anthony playing, and I'm playing all the modest. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the setting. And it's, I was surprised to read in Miles Davis' autobiography. He did the same. Is that right? He listened to Stockhausen before he went on the set. Huh. But yes. Uh, so it gets your mind and, and your musical yeah. heart ready. Yeah. It, your mind is you're creating more interesting, more unique, more personal music. They're not playing with the solo last year. I, I called my band once. Don't play with you played last week. Uh-huh. So we can, the improvisation part that you were mentioning. Yeah. Yeah, I'll play goal with you. Yeah. Your other career, which you've been pursuing, is, as we mentioned before, writing as an author. You're a columnist now. You're a commentator. You're an author of these books. Your latest book is Rome 476. How does that theme of improvisation fit in your writing? I write spontaneously. You could say human consciousness. The downside to that is that it's, uh, it ends up being wasteful because it's not done from an outline. I not think first and write. I write first and think afterwards. Aha. And they spend all day writing. And the last sentence, the effort it took to get that last sentence, it, it finally right and finally good. And I'll throw everything away and start the next day with that sentence. But that next day, might fool really well because I, I, that's for the doubt. You get the right thing because you got that one insight. Yeah, and you will get that without putting in the time. So I'll go to work either if I'm not inspired. No excuses kind of thing. Yeah. I've once, I've one time heard writing called thinking out loud. That in the act of writing, it, it forces you to think, as you said. That, but that's the shit. You, uh, because when you write down and somebody might read it and they'll go, man, that who you are, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, you, uh, you, you, you're forced to think and be able to stand and descend with you, which you wrote. Yeah. So it's very good training. Very good training. Yeah. I went back to school as an adult and uh, to study economic and money, bit, not to uh, learn how to make it, but to learn how I made it. Uh-huh. And I uh, signed up for a graduate class in economics because I had a master's degree in music, I figured I can do that. We go, whoa, I don't know what was said, my word. <laughs> I didn't know economics one. Okay. <laughs> then economics wants to, you better take some algebra too. Oh my God. So I'm taking algebra one. That was the gold brigade university in San Francisco, which is a little bit to adults. Uh, and uh, 
I just took every single class, undergraduate and graduate class in, in business and economics and uh, government. And he got a master's degree in economics. Actually, I don't want to go any further. I didn't see the benefit of going any further. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, so I have post college graduation, I have 35,000 hours wow. completed and studying in economic. Wow. So, as you say, you learned political, what you did, <laughs> political economy. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, if I notice a theme, if it's improvisation linking these, these aspects of your career, improvisation requires freedom. You have to be free to improvise. And I have heard you describe your own political philosophy and your own political economy as classical liberal. Correct. What does that mean? After the 18th century, Davis installed it out clearly. The founding fathers spelled it out clearly that we want a nation and social, political, and economic freedom. They said those words. um, The Declaration of Independence says, uh, Lights, liberties, and pop and uh, pursuit of happiness. Right, Jefferson changed that expression from law took property out. The other little common sense is he let that fact on the cell. So he didn't pursuing happiness. He didn't ring right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and in fact, one of the things that you argue in your book, including your most recent book, is that you embrace this philosophy of freedom not because you're. Uh, not being generous, but because you believe it's a great generosity to people to be free to flourish. So I'm flourishing because I'm free, but I want everybody to be flourishing. Well, you got to be free. You got to be free is a little special. Is it, but the Tocqueville has a very nice sense. All Americans should link democracy and America. I think Tocqueville, 1835, the opens up with America. Get rid of slavery. You're out of your mind. What are you doing? You are about to become the greatest nation on earth. Mr. Reckett and Kev, uh, who are the most responsible people in the world. Traffic. People in Kentucky, in the backwoods, the law cabins, are reading the newspaper discussing international events. In Europe, the farmers are not. Are, and Tesla's are not discussing international with this. Right. They're just doing their work. So that, this is unbelievable. And unbelievable what's, what's about to happen in this country. And we and it's not a coincidence that you attract that these great men, our founding fathers, get all fame at the same time. They had enough of this class society and, and rigidness. They weren't bordering their wealth. You have no chance. And so we had a body of those great people that would sit down for 90 days or, or whatever, 120 days or write a constitution on one page. Yeah. You got it right. You got it right. I, I'm, I'm, it's glad to hear you say Tocqueville. No, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say Tocqueville because all of our senior students who are Ashbrook scholars at the Ashbrook Center, I teach the class, we all read Tocqueville <laughs> from the first word to the last because I think you're absolutely right. There's so many important insights in there about what makes America work. Um I major in French, so I say, Tocqueville, of course. <laughs> um, that interest in America and American history and American principles. Um, obviously, you're a friend to the Ashbrook Center and our mission. What has given your interest in American history and principles 
What has attracted you to our mission? Well, yeah, we're uh, kindred spirit. <laughs> I wrote stuff that Geet Nefinity is from intuitive, and I'm, I'm living in San Francisco in California. So my second group, a San Francisco conservative, all has to do is say, you know, you could say, okay, otherwise, nobody wants to read it. All right. And so, whole cool read it. They had a hard time getting it published. They realized that from your news, from your letters, solicitation letters, you're teaching that, and your students are really that. So, you know, my brother's a filmmaker. And he's successful. He's in sister films. But they cost a million, two or three million a crack. Be painful. That's right. That's all. I could pay three thousand dollars to stand and hasn't having give out my books providers the students are reading it. And that was problem solved as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I want my books read. Not necessarily in the entirety, but in seeing people's bookshelves. Yeah. For Years to come, absolutely. For years to come, I'll be seeing that. Well, let me ask you this then. Your latest book, you mentioned your books. Your latest book, Rome 476. Um, if I can, can I just read the very first, um, really the, the, ded- the dedication? Um, I think it's so interesting. You say this. Rome fell in 476. With it, Western civilization, civil rights, scientific and technological progress, followed by the Dark Ages, 1,000 years. Why did Rome fall? Because its soldiers didn't lift a finger to stop the harms. Why? Those soldiers hadn't been paid. Why? All tax revenue went to service interest on the debt. In a country that is, as you know, where we have the national debt spiraling absolutely out of control, What's your warning and your lesson for us in your latest book? The lesson is probably for the rest of the world and not so much for us. Mm. Because we only the any of grass machine. <laughs> See, if we're out of money, we just print it. Problem solved. Inflation, if you have some savings in the bank, you just say goodbye. That will solve the problem. We will collapse. But if you don't want to be in that, in that pathetic state of having to print money with, and, and, uh, or to do what Greece did. I was in Greece in 2010. They called the Euro crisis. Yeah. Times. Right. And I was this with swim takers and, uh, was sitting at a, at a kitchen table and, uh, they got their checks. In the nail, like they're, they were retired teachers and I was like, passion tech. And they all boost out laughing. I was there. One half. <laughs> One half. And they all laughed. This is, he didn't even deserve what we were getting. The politicians ran her off the same, vote to me, and I'll double your passion around to all these kind of things that, that the progressive politicians will advocate or promise. And so, so we didn't object. We were getting paid too much. And so we'll solve our problem that way. We'll mm. cut Social Security 25%, 15%. We'll cut Medicare. Maybe uh, you know, the Medicare, much of it is the last six words of white, which draws the half a minute. It, yeah, just to say the line, 
if you are for those six months, right. if people were paying over insurance, like they were before Medicare, insurance, health insurance, it cost about $200 a month. Same as oral life insurance, property insurance. A young person would cost about $60 a month. Wow. That's what it would cost. I write about that quite a bit. Yes. And if you, ha- if you ask to the old person who lived, six months to live, you want to spend all your assets, you sell your home, everything needs to stay alive for six to months, but while at least something for your children and your grandchildren, I'll eat some food for my children and grandchildren. Yes, they would. But uh, today, no one has that decision. It's not, there's no market for health insurance. Nobody, no consumer is not deciding anything. Right. So everybody gets 500000 to get old. Why did ask them for it? Mm-hmm. My father, who was uh, successful, and uh, he used to look at the tab at the, the restaurant and buying the car. Where am I getting hit? Mm. Walk, I took him to the hospital, Boulder, to walk in. I don't care what it costs. Take care of me. Eight typical settings for him to say. Uh-huh. And is that PC not, that's not a good argument to cut back Medicare a little bit. There's a better argument. <laughs> right. And that's how we'll solve our problem. Uh-huh. We will not go under, but under country life. Yes. With a deal like that. One of the themes, though, that I've noticed in your writing, including in this book, is um, the importance of learning from history. That not to just talk about contemporary events and uh, be a mile wide and an inch deep, but to get deeper, Correct. to think historically and have that inform our thinking. Tell me about how you approach that in your writing. I believe that uh, every issue we're facing today has been faced in the past. Because there really are, are not new issues. And we're with journalism, is the reporting of history from the perspectives of the moment. And that's what the news is doing. As if nothing before has ever happened happened, and that no one before may have a much better idea of how to handle what we're doing. Right. And it's not... I love reading Aristotle. And Aristotle has a chapter on property. If you read Aristotle, if I didn't say who it was, he would say, who's that person? It just kind of sounds like us. Yeah, I suppose it's pausing about reading the Greeks. Yeah, it's not just like us. You wouldn't know with 30, 2,500 years ago. That's, he says, but property, one way, yeah, the community owes all the time. That's one approach. Another way is, and it kind of he split in half. Maybe uh, he didn't use the words that the means of production should be owned by the community, but you could own your own home, mm-hmm. kind of a mixed, or anything go complete freedom of ownership of, of all property. It Aristotle says, I'm for complete freedom because it, 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 uh, it creates diversity. Hidden words, the right city, right? As if it's a new word. You want a more interesting, more dynamic economy, don't be controlling it. Yeah. His word, 500 years ago, so we, so we can learn. And one of the things that's interesting to me about your works are, unlike a lot of contemporary commentators, um, you looking at history, it doesn't make you pessimistic. There's an optimistic thread throughout your writing. 
Um, where economists are predicting disaster, for example, well, and say the economists are almost always flawed. In fact, as a person, tell me about your optics, especially in Vivid, but not through my, um, all people in business optimize, do not care what government is doing, what regulations, what political parties are not. People in business can see both parties equally. The Gates party has somebody else that often person in business. Business go around everything. Wall Street is almost created to go around everything. They're not worried about it. We all are very bothered you're younger. They don't even come in to get it. It's, um, I'm not, not worried about that. The, um, the basic laws of economic and money, there's are timeless issues here. Mm-hmm. High level laws of economics and nothing to be intelligent. Yeah. The way the big turn on Sadie is one to two percent. And that's what they are. You know, in the back today, point one percent on your savings still. One to two percent. That's timeless. The rate of the trying on mortgage lending is two to three percent. It is higher, like today, it's only because of inflation. But once the inflation is that's all that rate will drop back to G it's three percent off. That's not it that's well that today is a nominal rate, not a real rate. The real rate is G is three percent. And the return on venture possible where money is at risk is between three and five years. Nobody's earning more than that firm. And in really efficient market, the efficient market practices, besides six practices, profit under competition isn't just to zero. True. It's as a, you can sell a dart at the stock market page. Whatever lands on, buy it. Because uh, it's, it, it's one stock that's the overhead, professional brokers are on that in one second. Professional investors are on it in one second. And bring that stock right back. You're driving on the, on the freeway, classic jams up. And you see one lane at the beginning of the road. Some go there, stay in your lane, huh? of course. Because uh, everybody starts to go there. And then you're like, that's price. You're not going to get the moderate. Right. That's the moderate. And so you and economists are have theories and predictions. It's all nonsense. In 2008, the famous financial crash, financial financial crisis, mm-hmm. um, there's a famous economist from Columbia University, something that the, the uh, Indian said, um, I was not or something like that. He was at an international settlement conference in uh, Europe with how does the economy? He asked them, had anyone of you ever seen the derivative? Not one ever fully. They're writing about it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. He said, I, I, you know, I wrote him, this what you said. He said, well, quote, I said yes. He said, I said, I said yes, and I quoted him in my book. Uh-huh. Okay, that's good. That's good. He said, yeah, take that. Don't ask him, Connie. Their thumbs are not on the pulse of the economy. They have nothing at stake. How can they know something that's just and not personally involved? Right. These all actually all signs indicate for recession. You can vet that I do. It's the business in person. It's the business person in the entrepreneur. He's got their finger on yeah. the pulse of you. It's almost like the ferry. It's a. Uh, it's it's a. Spanish versus a. Uh-huh. You're right. To ask our guest. There and maybe it's an unfair question, but their favorite American in American. 
If you have one, who would you say, this is my favorite. I've learned the most from, I've gotten the most inspiration from, something like that. Who would? My whole my have like a long 12 foot tangle from the 18th century. <laughs> I said, I had, and behind me, this big old picture of Tom Jeffy said, ah, you know, the whole family, like, oh, God, you get company coming in. <laughs> so Thomas Jefferson has moved me. The young Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. The time, he lived so long, especially for his age and time today, that you can you can toss out what he says in the open person. He started saying embarrassing things, but when he was young and as a genius, uh he said some great things and inspired us to the spirit. Oh, very already just this song is the mastership right there. And that means that every person in the nation has the vote. Death is in it. You're afraid of that. You're afraid of democracy. Lee, the adults of the Revolutionary War, go now. If there be no king or queen, but they're governing so small you won't see it. Uh, and everyone has a vote, including your neighbor. Uh, and they don't even have an army with lots of dead bodies and little art and little things. Yes, you're right. right. So you, know, have, you, you have to be an optimist. You don't have to be an optimist. They live an amazing American life. David Parker, you have also lived an amazing American life. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to join us. Great. Thank you, too. American Lives is a production of the Ashbrook Center. Ashbrook strengthens constitutional self-government by educating our fellow Americans, students, teachers, and citizens in our country's history and founding principles, and the habits of reflection and choice necessary to perpetuate our republic. If you want to learn more or get involved in this vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org. And if you enjoyed this episode of American Lives, Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please consider subscribing to The American Idea, the Ashbrook Center's podcast on the documents, debates, people, and events that have defined and continue to define our country.